Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Good morning, Epiphany Church. If you haven't heard, last Sunday was our first service back to worship in person after our season of quarantine. A shout out to the Toscano family, Rob, Terry, Sam, for hosting. It was good to see many of you again, even behind our masks, as we returned to in-person worship. A quick note for those of you who wish to remain at home for safety's sake, or if you're one of our long-distance listeners. It's my hope to maintain the Sunday podcast for a season in a simpler format. We're going to continue to post sermons and we'll share special announcements, things like that. And we may upgrade the podcast with new programming in the future. But for now, the church is returning to worship in person, and so it won't quite be the same production that it was during the worst of the pandemic. Keep a lookout for a pastoral note from Pastor Brian, from me, which is going to arrive via email, and I'll even put it out in the podcast too, so you'll be in the loop about some of the changes coming down the pike. We're going to have a lot of challenges and opportunities during this new season where we can meet together, but still we have to be six feet apart. And we're going to continue to have church together in that light, and we'll need everyone to be flexible, so stay tuned for new news as it comes. And if you're not on our email list, jump over to epiphanyligonier.org contact to sign up for the latest church news and notes. And thanks to everyone who has joined in the podcast during the worst of this quarantine. My prayer is that new waves of the virus don't return in the fall and the winter. But if they do, our plan is to return here for stay-at-home Sunday worship. And so, in thanksgiving for our time uh, together on this podcast, and thanksgiving that we can meet together in person, uh, well, we just give God all the glory and all the thanks. It's by his blessing that we have navigated this odd season so well. Here's Sunday's sermon from our first gathering uh, back together, picking up on Noah's exit from the ark in Genesis 8 and 9. The peace of God be with us all, friends. I look forward to seeing you soon. I want to begin by sharing with you a bit of my favorite news article that I've read so far in this pandemic season. And it's from the New York Times, and it goes like this. On the morning of May 23rd, 2020, Daniel Thorson rejoined society after an absence of two and a half months. He had spent that time in silent meditation at a cabin in remote northern Vermont, where he was part of a Buddhist monastic community. And during his 75 days in isolation, his hair had grown out, the last winter snow had melted, and the trees had budded. Frogs had come out of hibernation and begun peeping. Mr. Thorson, a podcaster and enthusiastic online philosopher, had also missed 75 news cycles. And so less than two hours after ending his silent retreat, uh, Mr. Thorson logged back onto Twitter. Did I miss anything? He wrote. Uh, I think the world has changed quite a bit since Mr. Thorson returned from his Rip Van Winkle wilderness retreat, which started on March 9th and ended about a week and a half ago. The world has changed quite a bit since we last met in person at Epiphany, too. But today, as we gather outside here at the Toscano house, we get to recognize that a number of things have not changed. God is still in heaven. His saints still live below. 
our sins are forgiven, our future life is secure, and Epiphany Anglican Fellowship is still a fellowship. Amen. You know our lockdown season could have been worse. If you go back through Genesis 6 and 7, where we're going through our sermon series right now, you can piece out a timeline of just how long Noah was in his ark with the family and the animals. And the text tells us that it, it did. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. But if you go through and, and look at how the different days of the months plays out, there's a longer time frame here because it took a better part of an entire year for the water to go down and the earth to dry out after the 40 days and 40 nights of rain. And so in our Genesis reading today, we find Noah and his family and the animals, they're now leaving the ark. And just like Daniel Thorson and just like Epiphany Church, Noah is entering a world into a world that is nothing like the world he left behind. What I hope to do today is show you that the, the world post-flood is a world we know and a world we are familiar with. Um, the flood, you see, is this marker for big changes in the relationship between mankind and creation and God. And I want to show you how the flood occasioned a new normal for humanity, one that, one that we take for granted, I think, but one that would surely have come as a shock to Noah and his family. And here's where our reading starts. When Noah and his family leave the ark, the first thing they do is offer God a sacrifice. And this makes sense. After all, if you've just experienced a saving work of God that spares you from the cleansing flood, you maybe want to show some gratitude. And the text tells us that the aroma of that sacrifice was pleasing to God. And this is an animal sacrifice. And it's just, you know, good to know that God appreciates the sizzle of a good steak. And, you know, God smells the fajitas coming from across the room in the Mexican restaurant is really into it. I mean, not really, but yeah, kind of, right? Um, God must be a foodie. Anyhow, this, this aroma is pleasing to God. And God says, you know what? I'm done. No more floods. I'm done. And as we read in our reading today, the token of that promise of no more floods is the bow that follows the rain, the rainbow. The rainbow is a symbol of God's covenant, an unbreakable promise that the flooding is over and done with. It's much more than just a sign that the world isn't going to end with another flood, right? That the rainbow doesn't just mean, okay, no more floods, but I'm going to sort of you know, keep, keep an eye out on things and maybe I'll destroy it with earthquakes or fire one day, but we're just going to take floods off the table. That's not what that means. You'll remember in previous weeks, we talked about how the flood is symbolic of God rolling back creation and how uh, around the third creation day, the, the waters were over the earth and then God separates the waters from the dry land. And so when we talk about this flood, it's as if God is pushing back the creation days to sort of hit the reset button and start over again. And so the, what God is saying when he says no flood to Noah, when God says that, he's, the promise is deeper. It's that he's not going to erase the world and start over again. Noah's sacrifice is so moving to God that God says, you know what, this is how it's supposed to be. This is what I created the world for, for good people to live godly lives and for good people to enjoy creation. And so God says, look, um, what's happening here, right? This is so good. I'm not going to destroy it and reset it. I think I'm just going to work with it, get, work with the world again 
and work with it to, to start over. I think that's the better option. There are a couple of other things that make Noah's world, his new world, a lot like our own. Um, things that we didn't read today that are kind of, I left out for brevity purposes. Um, God promises the seasons of the earth are going to remain steady, which is good for agriculture, right? That, you know, winter, winter spring, summer, fall. That cycle is going to be in place. Um, God allows for animals to become a source of food now. Uh, presumably before the flood, people didn't eat animals and they didn't eat meat. And that's something I don't have really a lot of time to go through today, but that certainly seems to be what the text implies, that God's permission to eat animals comes after the flood. And then God also institutes capital punishment, right? You remember we looked at the story of Cain and Abel. And as we looked at the story of Cain and Abel, we said, you know, why is it that, um, you know, the, the murdering brother gets away without having to be uh, executed? Why doesn't the eye for an eye God show up here? And well, the answer is, is that uh, he, God does do that, but it comes after the flood. He allows for the shedding of blood when it has first been shed. And I think that has something to do with the fact that he's preparing, that God is preparing us to understand the importance of life and death and the shedding of blood, whether that's animals and animal sacrifices or meat eating versus um, you know murder and crime and punishment. I think these are all themes that are going to come together in Jesus's death and resurrection. And so God is kind of setting the stage even now in Genesis 6 for us to experience and understand part of what Jesus is going to do later on. And so the world that arrives after the flood is one that we're actually kind of familiar with. There's a lot more death in it, more death in the animals, more human deaths, but there's also some stability in it. We've got regular crop growth and we can not have to worry about there being a catastrophic flood. And also through Noah, you know, we get like cheeseburgers and fried chicken and bacon and Although we should pause to recognize that Adam and Eve were not necessarily carnivores in the Garden of Eden, it might make us reflect on our own assumptions about faith and diet, you know, for the time being. But anyway, God God makes a covenant with Noah. He, he says, here's the rainbow, here's the sign of my covenant, Don't I'm never going to destroy the earth again. And so Noah transitions after being an ark builder, he becomes a man of the land. He gets into farming. And the text tells us that the thing that he gets into first, the first things that he plants and, and cultivates is a vineyard. He becomes a, a vinter and he takes the grapes and he juices them and he ferments them into wine. And when you read the stories of Noah and the Bible, they usually end when, they, when Noah gets off the ark. But there's a, this is the end of Noah's story. This is left out of the children's Bibles and it's an important story for us to consider. After setting up his vineyard and figuring out his vinifying process, after Noah sort of gets his vineyard up and running, we find that Noah gets drunk and passes out in his tent without his robes. He's naked. And there's a lot to infer here, right? You have to be pretty wasted. You have to be pretty drunk. Uh, you have to drink to excess to pass out naked on the floor of your own tent. And while scripture blesses the use of a good buzz to party and celebrate, Drinking till you pass out is a sign of something darker going on. And to pass out from alcohol without any clothes, right? It's quite the, the shameful thing to behold. The man judged by God to have a strong enough faith that he could be the person to reset the whole world is now drunk and passed out on the ground without any clothes on. And you know, we might actually have some sympathy towards Noah in this situation. 
He is the lone survivor of a massive catastrophe that saw the world change in front of him, right? I mean, think of, of how you would feel if you had your family, but everybody else that you knew and were in relationship died. Um, this is often how trauma works, right? Things that we experience in our own life overwhelm our ability to cope with them in a responsible manner. And so our brains seek relief in unhealthy and self-damaging ways. Trauma can mean that our, our fuses are cut short, and so we're angrier and we're more prone to outbursts in ways that we weren't before. And trauma can mean that we overeat or we oversleep or we overbusy ourselves to keep the psycholo psychological weight of our life away from the forefront of our minds. Trauma can mean we develop drug problems or problems with physical intimacy, and trauma can manifest itself in the abuse of alcohol. And so let's not bless Noah's newly discovered drinking problem here, but also Jesus will later say, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. I mean, do we think that God would be able to serve, do we think that we, excuse me, would be able to survive the flood if most of our non-family members perished at the hand of God? And, and so I want us to humbly acknowledge our own shortcomings this morning before we gloat at someone else's misfortune. In fact, that's exactly what happens to Noah's three sons. Two of them are going to grieve the drunken fall of a holy man, and one is going to gossip and gloat about it. Noah's middle son, Ham, walks in to discover his father, drunk and unconscious on the floor of his tent. And what does he do? He goes to his two other brothers and tells them about it. And the context, it makes us think that the conversation was not very respectful. Something like, hey, psst, brothers, you want to see something crazy? Dad's passed out drunk in the tent. Isn't that hilarious? Our dad, what a loser, huh? And so what Shem and Japheth do, Noah's two other sons, is they, they go to their father and they bless him with the dignity of covering up his nakedness. They don't even look at their naked father's body. They kind of walk into the tent backwards and maybe they're looking down and they see where Noah's feet are and they have a, have a blanket. And they, they, they walk backwards and they keep their back toward their father and they walk backwards and drape a um, drape a, a blanket over him to cover their father's naked physique. And so unlike their brother, who took the occasion as one uh, for disrespect and spectacle, Shem and Japheth go out of their way to honor their father, uh, doing so hundreds of years before God writes that the commandment, you know, on the stone tablet, right? Honor your mother and father. Uh, Shem and Japheth were doing that way before uh, the, the Ten Commandments. And so when Noah wakes up, he finds out about Ham and, and, and his disrespect and his shenanigans, and he pronounces blessings for Shem and Japheth and a curse on Ham. A curse is specifically for Ham's son, uh, named Canaan, of course, and it's going to foretell what will come in the book of Judges and the book of Joshua when Israel will enter and conquer this region of Canaan for itself a few centuries later. Um, but it's enough to say that Noah is not particularly happy with Ham over this disrespect. And, you know, I didn't plan on addressing this, but, you know, I'm going to sidebar for a second to say um, this text is actually pretty important because what ended up happening was for a number of years, um, white Christians used this text to justify slave ownership. And they said, look, we uh, as white people are the descendants of Shem and Japheth. Um, and um, as Christians, we're the sort of descendants of Shem in particular, the oldest. And uh, members of the black community, black people, are um, descendants of Ham. 
And the curse says that, you know, the descendants of, of, of Ham are supposed to serve the, depend, the, the dependents of Shem, so slavery makes sense. And I'm here to tell you that's a terrible reading of this passage. It doesn't make any sense. And, um, you know, shame on our Christian ancestors for um, getting this part so profoundly wrong. That's not what this text is about at all. And so now back to our regularly scheduled uh, uh, sermon. Um, what's the, so that's where our reading ends today, right? Um, and I shared earlier that this passage prefigures a couple of new normals in the world that Noah and his family would have to navigate, but now we simply regard these things as, as normal. And while some of it's obvious, right, eating meat, regular seasons, things like that, there are two things in particular I want to call your attention to. And the first is God's covenant to work with the world that he's made instead of starting over again. When you think about it, um, that implies that God is going to work with imperfect people for the rest of creation's existence. Uh, you very well may be shocked as we continue along in Genesis at the level of depravity that some of, of God's people engage in. The Reformation theologian Johann Brentz took the occasion on this passage in Noah to comment on this wider biblical reality when he engaged with, with um, this passage and his own comment on it. He said this, that this spectacle is seen in such a holy patriarch who until now has been praised as full of the Holy Spirit is quite abominable and even detestable. Yet scripture is not content with this remembrance, but later on adds much about other patriarchs that is as disgraceful as it is ridiculous. A drunken lot despoils his two daughters. Sarah delivers her handmaid to her husband to be impregnated. Uh, two sisters, the wives of Jacob, compete to sleep with their husband, and other things of this sort. This is why they say that the Hebrew sages prohibited anyone younger than 30 from approaching to read the book of Genesis. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, you know I, I am older than 30, I promise. I'm your young clergy, but I, I do make that threshold. And to be fair, I couldn't independently verify that statistic from from Johann Brentz about the Hebrew sages being, uh, you know, under 30, that sort of thing. But, you know, his point makes sense, right? Because the rest of the Bible is going to catalog God's work with royal screw-ups. And Genesis goes out of its way uh, to make that a central theme of the book. And so stay tuned. If you think God's partnership with a drunken and passed out Noah is weird uh, for a holy God's uh, MO, I mean, just wait till we get to the story of Abraham and Lot and some of these other characters in the book of Genesis. Brenz concludes his commentary on the passage by saying this, There are some who interpret Noah's drunkenness as the intoxication or greatness of Christ's love toward us, and Noah's nakedness as the humiliation suffering of the cross of Christ for us. And these are indeed pious reflections, but do they, they do not wholly fit Noah's example. Instead, there are other reasons for why this history is set forth in such a conspicuous place to be known by all. One of which is so that all pious people would be warned against placing their trust, first and foremost, in their own holiness and piety. And that's a long way of saying that God works with screw-ups. And so if God is working in your life, you know, you can put A, B, and C together there. And it was that way with Noah, and it remains that way within our own circumstances today. We should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but instead uh, recognize that God is working with us as sinners. And if Noah, the man picked to survive the flood as a sinner, well, we should have um, 
a real caution about trusting in our own piety and our own success. So that's the first thing. Um, God's working with sinners. The second thing, the new normal to work through this morning, is the fact that after the flood, the, the sin still remains. Uh, the sin still remains. And the great covenant that God made with Noah was that, again, he would work with sinners instead of wiping them out. Which, you know, for right now, it means that our world is going to be continually marked with sin, and we might not should be surprised about that. It wouldn't be wrong, to some degree, to call the latter half of this passage, the fall of Noah. Do you see how many parallels there are between Noah passing out drunk and the story of Adam and Eve? There are a significant amount. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence. Both Noah and the first humans, they sin by ingesting fruit in the wrong way, right? The fruit of the vine for Noah and the forbidden fruit for Adam and Eve. And both Adam uh, and Eve and Noah, all three of them, be they become and discover that they are naked. And that nakedness is a source of deep shame and embarrassment. And it's by God's grace that all uh, that Adam and Eve and Noah are saved from their nakedness by having another person cover them up. And these parallels, I don't think they're an accident of history. We're meant to see that the same struggles of Adam and Eve are playing out in the family of Noah, even after the flood was meant to cleanse the world from sin. So see then how this world and our world are not so different. Both Noah's world and our world are marked by sin. And even the most pious among us are prone to failure and frustration when it comes to living a godly life. But also note that our sinful world does not exclude God from working with us. We have seen the alternatives. Either God works with the sinful world or God erases it and starts over. And frankly, I'm grateful he chose the, the former and not the latter, that God is okay for now working with a world of sin. That's the good news in our passage today, dear friends. As frustrating as it is, God has chosen to work with a world marked by police brutality and riots and racism and discrimination. And God has chosen to work with a world marked by viruses and death and disease. And one day, God will enter that world marked by all these bad things we do and all the bad things done to us, and God will do something remarkable. God will take this whole creation on himself, sin included, and go through his own death on a cross on Calvary. And through the resurrection and the promise uh, that, are, that, come from that, that comes from that, he's going to make a third way. Because right now his options are deal with the world as it is or start the whole project over from, from scratch. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, we find a third solution, that the world can be saved. Sin can be separated from creation and it can be cast out and erased. And the beauty of God's original creation can be restored. We friends at Epiphany are coming out of our own virus arcs, returning to worship in a world that is different from the world we left behind last March. And in a little bit, we're going to have a congregational meeting to discuss what has changed between then and now, and how we as a church are going to adjust. But for now, I am grateful to share with you that the most important things have not changed. Jesus died and rose from the dead. He is coming to fix the world. Your sins are forgiven, and you are marked and sealed as Christ's own forever. And all things shall be made right. That is the promise of the rainbow. That's the love of Shem and Japheth. And that's the hope of the Christian gospel. And that, dear friends, will never change. In Jesus' name, amen. Feel it. I feel it.
Pennsylvania.